Welcome to Dangerous Christianity with Dr. Christopher Rodkey, where we explore new ways of being Christian that go against the grain, stands up against the church when it's evil, speaks truth to power, and reclaims the Bible as a radical message of hope, liberation, and justice. Dr. Rodkey is pastor of St. Paul's United Church of Christ in Dallastown, Pennsylvania, and leads the sacred profane community, a post-faith gathering for those seeking to nurture a literate and misfit geeky, sometimes sneaky, as well as a queer-affirming and beer-affirming spirituality. All information mentioned throughout the program is listed in the show notes. And now, please welcome Dr. Christopher Rodney. Our psalm reading is taken from the 42nd Psalm. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me continually, where is your God? As a deer flows for flowing, longs for flowing streams, my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him and help and my, my help and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and of Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the thunder of your cataracts. All, the, all your waves and your billows have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why, Sorry. why must I walk about mournfully because the enemy oppresses me? As with a deadly wound in my body, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. In the late 1990s and into the 2010s, new groups were emerging in churches that pushed the idea of biblical womanhood and biblical manhood. And churches were starting to, church groups were starting up to practice these things. I have a friend in Lancaster who actually participated in one of these groups out of the church. This is a real thing. Uh, they sometimes go as different names. Uh, but that's what they are. A lot of youth ministries for girls push these concepts of biblical womanhood. A lot of this was in response to a fear about sexual difference or acceptance of different orientations in the church. 
The idea was if you can clearly define what is man and what is woman set around biblical principles, we can exclude anything that threatens our church's teachings on sexuality. All of this is predicated on an assumption that if the Bible is true in a little literal way, then you must believe exactly as it says, do as it says, as is plain and as literal sense as possible in the words. But we know that this is a really problematic way of reading the Bible. And I really can't underestimate or understate how prevalent this was in growing Protestant churches in the last 20 years. In fact, talking to a few of you this week who grew up in other traditions, this was something you experienced. But then came along Rachel Held Evans' book in 2012, titled, A Year of Biblical Womanhood. Now, I've been thinking about Rachel Held Evans uh, this week. Uh, we did a book study with one of her books last year uh, because she died ago a year this month. She left behind a husband and small children. She came down with a stroke unexpectedly, and she died at the age of 37. It's been a year since she has been gone. I know that some of you know who she is. Uh, she was an evangelical Christian writer whose deep questioning about the Bible and the roles of women in the church led her to become a galvanizing cultural figure among many Midwestern Christians. The main idea of her book, which was titled A Year of Biblical Womanhood, was to take the ideas that these groups that were in the church promoting biblical womanhood and testing them out and seeing what it really does look like if one was to follow the scripture plainly and literally about what it means to be woman. So for a year, every month, she would do exactly as the Bible was instructing women to do. She focused on a different virtue throughout the year. I have them on the screen. They were gentleness, domesticity, Obedience, valor, beauty, modesty, purity, fertility, submission, charity, silence, and grace. This is what a biblical woman should be like. And then she wrote about what happened every month. So what ensues is her experience of dressing plainly. And here's a picture of her sleeping outside of a tent, uh, outside of the house where her husband is staying while she is on her period. She did not cut her hair for an entire year, which she described as looking like an animal died on her head. She always covered her hair. She cooked traditional biblical foods that we normally would not eat today. When she was feeling contentious, as the Bible says, she would sit on the corner of her roof of the house until her feelings wore off. And this is my favorite one of her being a cheerleader for her husband at the gates of the city. She concludes in a very straightforward way that the Bible, when taken literally, gives us the following ideas of what it means to be a woman or a mother. This is what she wrote. Thou shalt submit to my husband's will in all things. Thou shalt devote thyself to the duties of the home. Thou shalt mother. Thou shalt nurture a gentle and quiet spirit. Thou shalt dress modestly. Thou shalt cover thy head when in prayer. Thou shalt not cut thy hair. Thou shalt not teach in church. Thou shalt not gossip. Thou, thou shalt not have authority over man. Now, a lot of the idea of biblical womanhood is taken right out of Proverbs 31. You'll notice that all these books I put up here reference that in some way. 
that referenced something called the capable wife. Now, I remember as a teenager growing up in the church that Proverbs 31 was sort of lifted to us as what the ideal woman should be like. Many of these books were written for teenage girls, and Proverbs 31, or at least the second part of it, is the outline of everything they teach. And here it is. A capable wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax with the works with works and willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food, she brings her food from far away. She rises while it's still night and provides food for her household and tasks for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid for her household when it snows, for all her household are clothed in crimson. She makes herself coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the city gates, taking a seat among the elders of the land and makes linen garments and sells them. She supplies the merchant with sashes, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at this time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her happy, and her husband too, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears is the Lord is to be praised. Give her a share in the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the city gates. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I did not expect that we would be hearing about how uh, the ideal woman uh, does not fear for snow on Mother's Day, but nonetheless, that is the hand we're dealt right now. I don't want to harp on this scripture too hard because it's easy to point to these words and point out the patriarchy and the submissiveness about it and so on. And that's especially easy to do because that is exactly how many, including myself, were taught how to read this. But there's lots of positive things here. The real issue that we can agree about womanhood and motherhood are much more than what's stated here. And this uh, passage of scripture is often criticized as being the perspective of an upper-class woman rather than the women most of us know. Aside from this, it places the ideal woman or the capable wife as defined and as grounded in the home, or her value is based on the relationship she has to her husband and children. For those of you who didn't grow up in churches that taught this, the fact is our society places ideals for women grounded in many of these same statements. And these are often ideas used to exclude or shame women. So here's the insight that Rachel Held Evans, again, who died a year ago this week, brought to this central text for many Christian women. And I wanna lift that up today. Her take on Proverbs 31, has over the past few years helped me see this scripture in context myself. So first, what we read is 
only part of what uh, only part of what is there in the scripture. The fact is, there's an entire section right before it that is never read, and this is the last chapter of the book of Proverbs. So. The beginning of the last chapter of Proverbs, Proverbs 31, is always left out of this discussion about biblical womanhood, and this is really essential for making sense of it. So let's take a look at that, and I have it on the screen. Proverbs 31, verses 1 through 9. This is immediately before what we just read. It starts out, The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. No, my son, no son of my womb, no son of my vows. Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, or else they will drink and forget what has been decreed and will pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Speak out for those who cannot speak for the rights of all the destitute. Speak out, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Now, who is King Lemuel? Well, the theory and the Jewish tradition holds that this is a fictitious name or a name that is another name that is given to King Solomon. Okay, King Solomon. Now, if you know who Solomon's mother is, you know that it is Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba, again, Solomon's mother, if you, know your, if you know your Bible, you know why this is really interesting. Bathsheba was the last wife of King David. Bathsheba, whose first husband was intentionally killed in war so that the king could seduce her. Lemuel, the word itself, by the way, means king to the God or king who is of the God. So Bathsheba gives her son, who is the ideal man, the future King Solomon, this advice. It's an oracle that his mother taught him, saying, No, my son, no son of my womb, no son of my vows. Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy king. Now, it's easy to focus on don't give your strength to women here, but it's don't give your ways to women and to those who are out to destroy kings. Uh, And by kings, Bathsheba means to her son, those who destroy you, right? It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink or else they will drink and forget what has been decreed and will pervert the rights of the afflicted. In other words, it's not just the functions of those with power to celebrate their desire for drink or to live in luxury because this desire makes them forget what their own laws are and what perverts the rights of the afflicted. This is to say kings drunk on their own power exploit the rights of the poor and the vulnerable. Instead, she says, you as the king should give luxury or the benefits of your wealth to those who are not so fortunate. And we should keep in mind that wine for the rich at that time was luxury. But wine for the poor at that time was a way of protecting and ensuring your health. Wine was safer than water to drink, especially when you were on the road working. Give strong drink to the one who's perishing, she says, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Bathsheba then speaks to the king as a boy, 
Speak out for those who cannot speak. Speak out for the rights of the destitute. Speak out and judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Now, it seems to be at first glance a, a big discourse about women. It's really the mother saying, do not give in to those who are trying to take you down as the king or to women. Instead, go against the politicians around you, prioritize the poor, share your wealth, do not be distracted by your lust. That's the point. Now, I think this is really interesting if we consider it carefully. But then again, after this, we turn to the infamous bit about the capable wife. And it begins, a capable wife who can find. She's more precious than jewels. Now, let's stop right there. What's stunning to me is that if what we, and this is something that Rachel Held Evans brought out in her book, uh, that the word for capable wife here in Hebrew is eshet cheil, eshet cheil. That means valorous woman, not capable wife. There's a difference between capable and valorous, right? So this is how to read this. And we'll go through it again very br briefly. Again, this is Bathsheba, the scorned woman, telling her son, the future king, how to compliment women. Why does she say this? Because she, Bathsheba, is the victim of the boy king's father's lust. And she's scorned because she isn't David's first wife. Bathsheba is remembered in history and in art as a temptress or a lo loose woman. But that's not really the story if you know your Bible. She is a scorned woman. So Bathsheba is a, um, so Bathsheba is a faithful and capable wife who gets no credit. She gets no honor. And she's telling her son, the, the child who will be the king, how to compliment the women in his life. And she says, verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. In other words, she's acting in her husband's best interests. Again, if you know the Bible story, you know that David's first wife was Michal, M-I-C-H-A-L, Michal. Michal is described as a mean woman who's jealous of the king. But we can read her story today, if we take the whole story as a, as a single story, and see that she had her husband's best interests in, in uh, everything that she does. And she was also a victim of David like Bathsheba. She was shunned and she was devalued because she had no children. And what's interesting, while I was checking this out this week, in 1 Chronicles 3, which is a different book of the Bible, there is an authoritative list of David's wives, and they mention seven wives. I have them now on your screen. You'll see that Bathsheba is number seven. But the first wife, Michal, who is usually seen as the most important, the first wife is the most important, is completely forgotten out of the official list. Now, the reason is probably because she had no children. In the story, Michal prioritized David time and again over her own family. And she even saves David's life when Saul was trying to kill him. And after she, made, and after she saved him, he made, she made no effort to uh, be in touch with her again until... Her father, the king, King Saul, gave her as property to someone to spite David. David only cares about Michal, the first wife, to claim his legal right, wife as a matter of dignity and as a matter of property. 
and appears to argue that the king has no right to give his property away and the focus of the debate is how much money his wife is worth. She's only valuable when it comes to putting a price tag on her. Now, why bring all this up? My point is that Bathsheba, the scorned eighth wife, is a victim of the popular king as well, and she's instructing her son to honor the women in his life, especially those who care about him and offer criticism and always act out of his best interests. So I hope we can make some sense out of this. So in verse 11, we read, The heart of her husband trusts in her. He will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of his life. Again, I hope this is making sense. This is Bathsheba saying to her son, Solomon, honor the women in your life. And here I imagine that what happens after this is not a description of what makes the perfect wife, but she describes the things that many of her women, the women of her time do and do, does not get credit. And keep in mind, this is, even though she's a scorned victim uh, as the eighth wife of the king, she's still the wife of the king. She's an upper-class woman. So she's saying, as the wife of the king, she knows how to shop for what the household needs, and she enjoys a role. She's resourceful for food. She's up late for her family when the husband sleeps. She feels, feeds her children in early hours. She manages the female servants and slaves. She handles the agricultural assets of the king, keeping in mind that that was a thing back then. Women were in charge of the garden. Women were farmers, not men. And I think the few things after this have to do with agricultural business. She personally cares for the crops. She's physically strong. She, she, is, she, perceives, she says that she perceives her merchandise as profitable. Now, looking this up, what the commentators say this means is that in times of economic depression, she continues her care for the plants. She's up late at night caring for her family. She's not dependent upon her servants. She's kind and generous to the poor, perhaps offsetting the lack of kindness and the generosity the king shows to the poor. She makes sure everyone in the house has what they need and so on. I think you get the point. Now remember that this isn't so much about the ideal wife, but it's the valorous woman said within the context of a mother listing the things that she does as the wife of the king that does not give her credit. Now Bathsheba then pivots and says how the valorous woman should be treated. Following the end of the reading, her children stand up as kneeling and treat her like they treat their father, the king. The husband praises her and treasures her, keeping in mind that this is in a context where kings had many wives and Bathsheba was the last of the wives. The last wife would normally not be singled out in praise. Then we go to the closing proverb of the last verse of the entire book of Proverbs with Bathsheba speaking to her son who would be the future king. Charm is deceitful and beauty is, in, is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her a share in the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the city gates. The valorous woman, in other words, might not be charming. She might not be beautiful in conventional senses of beauty. But any woman with faith in God is to be praised and not praised by God here, but praised by her children and her husband. So finally, this line is saying something about this bit about her making clothes or selling props. And it, and it does mean this about making clothes and selling props, about the fruit of her hands. But the deeper meaning is this. The works of her hands are what she does for others, especially the children. She doesn't let people praise her. She doesn't say let people praise her, 
but let her works praise her. That is, let her children and her husband praise her in the city gates, which is inside the walls of the city where the family lives. In other words, act in such a way that reflects good on your mother. Make your mama proud. Now, I've spent a lot of time talking about this, and I think it's important, especially because I know some of you grew up in a context where this was something taught to you. Uh, but I also think it's a good example of how reading Scripture in its context and making sense of it helps us unlock something a little more interesting or even more stunning that we might not see or expect, it, or expect on the first reading. Keeping in mind that this is a scorned and publicly humiliated and victimized wife of a king, the eighth of the eighth wives of David. The other wives weren't treated so well either. This is a woman who is not given credit where credit's due. This is the teaching of a woman who might live in wealth now, but came from very little. Even in wealth, she was treated like, like she was in poverty. This was the teaching of a woman oppressed by the king, oppressed by her husband. And what we hear are her teachings about how patriarchy works to the rising king, the future patriarch, her son, telling her son who would be the king not to treat her as she has been treated, not to make the mistakes of her popular husband, and to live in a way as the future king that praise, gives praise to his mother by the actions and how he treats other women. And we should remember, by the way, when he grows up, Solomon was seen as the wisest man of the Bible and the most masculine man of the Bible. He had 700 wives and a total of 1,000 wives and concubines, as it says. And we should also remember it is through the bloodline of Bathsheba, through Solomon, that uh, we've, we come to the lineage and genealogy of Jesus himself. So for me on Mother's Day, we always must remember that not all women are mothers. Mother's Day is about women more in general than just about mothers. And young women and girls may likely be future mothers. We should celebrate young girls on Mother's Day also. We know that mothering can take different forms, and what defines a biological understanding of mother is not always what we mean by mothering. Some women don't want to be biological mothers, but we all have a mother. When we consider all the great and thankless jobs that mothers have and do, the biological relationship between a child and mother isn't the most important thing that makes a mother a mother. It's how she is mothering that matters. In our scripture that we consider today, which is often pointed as one of the most patriarchal things in the Bible, one of the passages of scripture used to oppress women in the church, we have to admit it is patriarchal in some ways, but in its context, it's a lesson taught, as the Bible says, against the patriarchy. It is the words of a mother to a child, a woman who's led a tough life, talking to her son who will be the king, saying, don't be like your father when it comes to how you treat women. Remember how this started out at the beginning of verse 31, saying, no, 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 my son, no, my son of my vows. Don't give in to lust for power for women like your father did, specifically how she was treated with the other wives but honor your mother and be a better man than your father was. The Eshet Sheli that we read as capable wife. What is the capable wife in Proverbs 31? 
isn't really capable, but it's valorous. And it's not really even the wife, it's all of the things that a woman does that are out of courage. When we think of the word valor or valorous, we should remember this isn't a word usually given to women. It's a word for great and courageous warriors or soldiers in battle. Men can be brought into battle, but women are living out a battle, especially women with children in front of everyone. And men can brag that they know women, but they don't know much about the lives that women actually face. Men often do not consider that those who are mothers, and in particular, and in particular this case of Bathsheba, those who are mothers are publicly shamed or devalued on a regular basis. And not just by men, but by women and other mothers. Some of you know, especially those of you who are younger know this because it's something in culture, that mother shaming is a real thing that goes on in our culture. Bathsheba says to her son, be a better man than your father. And this is quite a role, given how important and how central David, the father, is to the story of the Jewish people. So this is all to say the message of Mother's Day um, isn't really for mothers today in the church. It's to the children of mothers, which is all of us, and especially men, especially those men with authority or with a role of a head of a household, to do what the fourth of the Ten Commandments says, honor your parents. And speaking to men, honor your mother and honor the women in your life, whether they are your biological mothers or not, in a way that honors her for being the eshet cheli, valorous, courageous, self-giving, tirelessly supportive, fierce, strong, and we could go on in her own way, in ways that you've never really thought about or realized or materialized before. The valorous woman is defined by her strength, not by what is given to her. So today I say to you, Happy Mother's Day. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, so be it. Thank you for listening to Dangerous Christianity. For more information about how to get involved in the movement, how to contact Dr. Christopher Rodkey, or where to find information regarding his preaching itinerary, publications, or how to make a contribution to his ministry, please refer to the listed show notes. Dr. Rodkey, again, would like to thank all of his listeners for continuously supporting and tuning into his work and message. Thank you.